we have this weekend enjoyed a great celebration of another birthday of the United States of America, 244 years. Today we begin the 245th year of our nation. Try to remember if you can from last July the 4th till now, just some of the things that have happened. It makes you wonder, can we survive from this July the 4th till we come to the next birthday and complete 245 years? America is not what she once was. America is not, once, uh, not what she needs to be or what we want her to be. What can we do about it? I want to bring to your attention today a passage of Scripture that describes the attitude, the position of another nation of millenniums ago, but a nation that suffered the judgment of God. And the question arises, is it God's active judgment or is it simply God withdrawing his provision and his protection? And I'm not sure we know from then or now, but we do know God's in charge and God's going to do what's right. And I want us to use the attitudes, the words, the actions of that nation of long, long ago in a situation, circumstance in which they find themselves and let it apply to our lives today. And the challenge I want to bring to us is this. I think we can all agree our nation needs some help, some improvement, some problem solved. How's it going to happen? And if you hear anything I say today, you'll hear me say it's not going to happen from the top down. And it's not going to happen from the outside in. It's going to happen individually from the hearts of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And once you and I individually, personally become what we need to be and have the attitudes we need to have and take the steps we need to take, I believe God will send his Holy Spirit to unite us and cause a great movement. But that's not going to happen until each one of us individually faces what we need to face and deal with what we need to deal with. So we're going to look at this passage of uh, Scripture today, Psalm 137. If you have your Bibles, I hope you'll turn there. I noticed in the earlier service a lot of people were turning, and I'm seeing some of that happening now, but I'd like for you to be able to look at the verses. Uh, if you don't have your own Bible, there's one there in the pew. You may have an electronic device you can use, and they're going to be on the screen as well. So either way, I want you to be able to observe what God's Word has to say. And basically what we're going to find here today is not a passage of Scripture that says, there's the example, do what they did. We're going to find just the opposite. We're going to find a passage of Scripture that says this is the way God's people many centuries ago handled the same situation of a decaying, declining, destroyed nation. And the way they handled it is just the wrong way. You and I need to learn from their example and go in the opposite direction and do the right thing in dealing with our own lives and our position in the nation that we love and that we care about so very much. Our passage is Psalm 137. I would ask you to stand with me as we read this passage of Scripture. If you're at home, join us in standing, join us in reading, and seeing what God's Word has to say. <clears throat> By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they that carried us away captive, required of us a song. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing unto us one of the songs of Zion. 
how shall we sing the songs of Zion in a strange land, or the, the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. Please be seated. Just a, a word of background about this passage of Scripture. This psalm is one of the latest in the writings of all the psalms. You obviously see there's no title or superscription there. This is not one of the psalms of David. This happened centuries later after David's rule and reign and activity among God's people. This happens at the very end of the existence of the nation of Judah. A couple of hundred years before, 10 of the northern tribes had already been judged by God and carried away into captivity. And now we're reading what has happened when the Babylonians conquered the world, and in conquering the world, they conquered the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, destroyed and pillaged the land, destroyed the walls, destroyed the temple, destroyed the very life and hope of the nation of Israel. And this is a psalm written anonymously, but to reflect the words, the thoughts, the attitudes, the spirit of God's people when their nation had fallen. And I think we find our nation not quite so far down the road yet. We haven't had the enemy marching in our streets yet. We haven't had, uh, uh, at least in recent days, uh, massive numbers of uh, buildings and uh, important places throughout our country destroyed by the enemy. And we haven't been carried away captive to a foreign land yet. But who knows what the future may hold? If, if our nation continues in the way it's going to go. So what I find in this psalm are words and attitudes reflected that we can learn from, but basically we're going to learn to go in the opposite direction that the Jewish people took when they found themselves as captives, as refugees in Babylon, as described here by the rivers of Babylon so many years ago. So let's learn from uh, these verses today. And I want to start, if you have your Bible or if you're looking on the screen, I want to start with verses 7, 8, and 9, the end of the psalm, and just point out a couple of things there. You find that the word remember, O Lord, so this is a prayer coming at the end of the psalm. There's a statement of condition and attitude earlier, but now there's a prayer. And if you're familiar with biblical uh, actions and, and attitudes and, and portions of the Psalms as well as other portions of the Bible, you may be familiar with the term imprecatory. This is an imprecatory portion of the Psalm and an imprecatory prayer. You say, well, explain that big word. And the answer is praying for God to judge those, in this case, that were perceived to be the enemy. And in an imprecatory prayer, there's a good thing and a bad thing. The bad thing is the emotion of hostility and anger and desire for revenge. And you find that in these verses. The two nations that are named specifically are Edom and Babylon. 
The Edomites were relatives and neighbors of the Jewish people who when the Babylonians came in and began their destructive actions, the, the Edomites stood back and laughed and offered no assistance, no help, uh, no aid whatsoever for their Jewish relatives. And as a result, obviously here, the concern is in this prayer, God judge those Edomites because of what they didn't do to help us. They deserve judgment. We're calling on you to bring it to them. And then, of course, the other enemy is the Babylonians who had invaded the Jewish people and carried them away captive. And 70,000 of them are now found here uh, in Babylon. And the, this psalm reflects their condition, their spirit, and their attitude. I said there was a, a negative side to this psalm that, or this prayer, this imprecatory prayer, and that's the negative side of dealing with uh, uh, emotions of revenge uh, and uh, hatefulness and desire for destruction. Those are not good emotions for us to have. But the positive side of the prayer is they did take it to the Lord and leave it there. So as you and I deal with difficult circumstances and people and situations, we can learn from the attitude of this portion of the psalm here. God has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And we're much better off to acknowledge our hostility and our anger and our resentment, to deal with it, to take it to the Lord, and then leave it to him to handle the situation. I'll come back and say more about it later, but I want you to uh, at least begin to pick up with me here, though. The other error of this part of the psalm is that the Jewish people, the writer of this psalm, was identifying the Edomites and the Babylonians as if they were the enemy. And as we move along, I'll point out to you that those people are not the enemy. There's another very real enemy then and now. And our attitude toward people does not need to be one of desiring them to be punished or destroyed. We do have to deal with our emotions, but once we've dealt with them, we need to see people the way God sees them. And I want to point that out to you as we uh, look through this passage today. Well, that's the last part of the psalm. Go with me to the very first two verses. And here's where we get one of those lessons. There are four things in verses 1 and 2 that the psalmist here says the people did. And I want to say to you, they're exactly the wrong thing to do. And as you and I deal with conflict, deterioration of our nation, a society and a culture that's in trouble as we face it. We dare not do these four things that are listed here, and they're pretty obvious. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. One of the worst things we can do for America, for our, the world in which we live, and for the day in which we live, and the opportunity that is ours, is to sit down, which is the attitude of doing nothing. When we sit down, it leads to the next wrong thing to do, and that's to weep in regret, in misery, in self-pity, which leads to the next uh, era in our ways, and that would be to remember the past as if, if we could just go back and have things the way they were, if we could just go back to the good old days, if we could just make things the way we remember them, then everything would be all right. You and I need to be challenged today as we face the circumstances, the situation that we face here in our nation, that we dare not sit down. We dare not weep in self-pity. And we dare not try to think that if we can just go back to the way things were, everything will be all right. And then the most, 
the saddest, most painful portion of this psalm is in verse 2. The fourth thing that they did, we hanged up our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. These Jewish exiles, refugees, if you would, captives who've been carried away from their land to a foreign land a thousand miles away, evidently had been located between two rivers near the capital city of the nation, the empire of Babylon, and the capital city named Babylon itself. And so they camped and existed there amongst these two rivers that flowed. The willow trees grew along the banks, and they said, we had no desire to sing, we had no desire to worship, we had no desire to serve our God. And so we took the instruments of our praise and worship and service, and we hung them up as if we had no use for them and we'd never return to them once again. Do you see the despair? These four things are exactly the opposite of what America needs from you and I today. We don't need to sit down, we need to stand up. We don't need to weep, we need to claim God's promises and place our faith and trust and our hope in God. We don't need to remember with regret, but we need to claim the truth of God and march forward to his victory with his plan and purpose in mind. And we dare not totally give up and hang our harps, our instruments of praise and worship and service, the symbol of our spirit toward God, to hang those up as if we had no uh, reason or desire or ability to go on. Then I want you to notice verses 5 and 6. I find a couple of statements there again. They sound good on the surface. Look at verse 5. If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. Is it, there's a sense of commitment there. There's, there's a sense of dedication there. There's a sense of loyalty there. I'm not going to forget the good things of God and, and the things that God has done for us. And perhaps even saying, I'm not going to forget God's purpose for my life. And again in verse 6, if I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. There's a, there's a sense of commitment there. But I kind of get the feeling that that commitment was being expressed in a way that I can illustrate for you. You've all heard the story of little Johnny. It might have happened back last March, April, or May when some of you were homeschooling little Johnny. Uh, he couldn't go to school and you had him there and he was running all over the house full of energy, full of noise, could not be controlled. And you finally said, I've had enough. Johnny, sit down and be quiet. And little Johnny sat down in a chair, but then you looked and noticed he's grinning his eyes are gleaming, what's going on? And so you ask him, Johnny, what's going on with that expression on your face? He said, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. I think we've all heard that story and we all understand that attitude. Well, that seems to be maybe the attitude the Jewish people had right here. We don't have enough courage, enough boldness, enough faith and trust in God to stand up on the outside, but we've still got that glimmer of hope on the inside. So verses 5 and 6 give us a, a, a good example, but they don't carry nearly enough dedication or commitment uh, or involvement, engagement on the part of the people. Well, we've looked at all the verses now except verses 3 and 4, and I want to zero in on especially verse 4. But look at verse 3. There's that sense of feeling sorry for themselves. Those that have captured us and brought us here are now asking us to sing for them. The Jewish people were known for their active singing and dancing and worship. We see many illustrations and indications of it throughout the, uh, uh, the Old Testament. 
David's famous for his dancing before the ark of the Lord and so many other indications of it. A whole series of the Psalms are called the Psalms of Ascent. And they were Psalms with the, written and given to the Jewish people with a specific purpose for them to sing as they traveled toward Jerusalem in times of feast and festival, the Passover or some other feast or festival. As they made their way to Jerusalem on those pilgrimages, they would sing those Psalms of Ascent in praise and in worship and celebration. Well, evidently the Babylonians were aware of that and they wanted to see some of that excitement and some of that enthusiasm where they were. And so they taunted the Jewish people. They teased the Jewish people. Why don't you dance for us like you danced years ago back in your land? Why don't you sing those songs for us? Why don't you entertain us? And so it became a matter of sarcasm on the part of the Babylonians and a matter of deep hurt on the part of the Jewish people. Which leads then to that fourth verse, and that question is asked there, and I want to point it out to you, and it's going to remain on the screen as we continue on with the, the message. And I uh, just want us to reflect upon it today. They came to ask the question, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? I want to give you about three lessons to take with you today. And I start by saying that that's a good question, but they've asked it in the wrong way. It's a question asked with a tone of defeat. How can we sing the Lord's songs in this strange, sufferable, difficult place and circumstances how we are? How can we sing for the Lord? The question perhaps would have better been asked. And here's again one of those places where this is the way they did it. Do it just the opposite in your life. How can I fail to sing the songs of the Lord? in a strange land. The Lord is the same here in Babylon as he was back in Israel. The Lord's promises are as true today as they were yesterday. The Lord's victory is as sure now as it's ever been. My circumstances don't affect it. How can I fail to sing the songs of Zion? And that raises the issue, sing the songs of Zion for who? Well, first of all, the people needed to be singing those songs of Zion for one another, to encourage one another, to hold one another up, to build up one another's faith. But more than that, who better to hear the songs of Jehovah God, the truth of God, the hope of God, the power of God, the, the victory and the salvation of God, who better to hear it than the pagan Babylonians? Who better to sing it than the Jewish people who knew it from personal experience? And who, uh, when better to sing it than in that moment? And where better to sing it than in the place where they were? Do you see how that applies to us today? As you and I face the circumstances and, and the difficulties of our own culture and our own society and our own everyday life, we have a song to sing. And when better to sing it than when things are dark and difficult? And we have a lot of folks out there that give us a hard time and make our lives difficult and bring great difficulty and stress to our nation. But who needs to hear our song, our testimony, our witness, the truth of God more than them? So the question is best asked, how can we fail to sing the Lord's song in a strange land, in a difficult time? How can we fail to sing that song? I mentioned to you earlier the Edomites and the Babylonians, the Jewish people here seem to almost view them as enemies 
and we're praying God's judgment upon them. To leave it with the Lord is a good thing, but to view people as enemies is the wrong thing. And may I share, us, share that truth with us today. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. The book of Ephesians tells us we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual power. And the name of that uh, spiritual power and enemy is the devil. Jesus himself called him the prince of this world. That title tells us he has some freedom, some authority, some initiative and activity in this world. But he's under the authority of the one above him. And it's only given to him in a limited measure and for a certain amount of time. But our true enemy are not people. Our true enemy is the devil. In fact, I would say to these Jewish people as they sat there in Babylon and thought about the Edomites, their relatives who had withheld help, and thought about the Babylonians who were not only torturing them but uh, teasing them with this uh, sarcasm that we've just looked at. Instead of looking at those as your enemies, you need to realize they bleed the same red blood that you bleed. They've been created with the same image of God and stamped with the same value that God places upon your life is placed upon their life. The enemy is not people, and we can never see people as our enemy. The enemy is the evil one. Now, certainly the evil one operates among people, and people are the tangible uh, actions and force that we see before us, and it's easy for us to make the assumption and to jump to the wrong conclusion and begin to see people as our enemy. But children of God who want to make a difference in their world and children of God who want to make a difference in America are going to have to see people. They may not talk like us. They may not look like us. They may not vote like us. They may not act like us. But they're made by the same God that made us. They bleed the same blood that we bleed. They have the same image of God and the same value in their lives that God places upon us. And may I remind us, When Jesus started on the cross, those first words, Father, forgive them, it included every person around that cross, friend and foe. It included the larger circle of the governments and the society that was engaged in crucifying him and nailing him to that cross. But I believe it reached all the way back to the very first sin in the Garden of Eden, the very first human being who sinned against God, and it reached forward to include the very last person who will ever live as a sinner upon this earth, and it includes us. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. And he prayed for my forgiveness, but in the same prayer, he prayed for the forgiveness of those that seemed to be my enemies, those that seemed to bring such difficulty into my world and into my life and seemed to be so opposed to God. They may be, but the real enemy is the devil. And those that seem to be my enemy actually are those who are the objects of God's love and affection, the prayer of Jesus for forgiveness. And I need to learn to see people in that same way, to view people as the targets and the goal of being reached and transformed by the gospel in the same way that somebody brought the gospel to me that touched and transformed my life. It's probably going to be one of the hardest adjustments you'll have to make in your thinking and in your attitude and your uh, overall worldview and overall outlook is to not see bad people and mean people and cruel people as your enemy, but to recognize the true enemy is the devil and that people are in need of and deserving of salvation.
just as much as you and I are uh, as well. So the three things I would let you ask you to take with you today are simply this. First of all, know who the real enemy is. And his name is Lucifer, Satan, the devil. He seeks uh, whom he may devour. He's the prince of this world. But his days are numbered. And that's the real enemy that we fight. Every other person, whether they act appropriately or not, is the object of God's love and grace. And you and I have the privilege of demonstrating to them forgiveness, demonstrating to them the gospel, demonstrating to them the privilege and the opportunity of being saved themselves. Know the real enemy. Then secondly, remember who you are. These Jewish people in Babylon had seemed, have seemed to have forgotten they're God's chosen people. God's people that he chose to bless, and this is where they'd forgotten it for many, many years. Not only had God chosen to bless them, but that they might be a blessing to all nations on the earth. And that's who you and I are as well. We're the objects of God's affection, God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, God's forgiveness. But God's chosen to bless us in order to make us instruments of his forgiveness and his salvation to all those who will receive it. I shared this in the earlier service, and I want to share it with you as well. I don't remember if I've mentioned this in my time here at First Baptist Pelham or not, but I think it's worth you hearing, even if you have to hear it again today. When God saved you, why didn't he take you right on to heaven then? Well, there are two pretty obvious answers. When he saved me, he didn't take me to heaven because heaven wasn't ready. He's still preparing a place for me, and when he gets it ready, then he'll take me to heaven. Do you really think that makes any sense? That the God who could speak and create everything that is in existence in six days is still delaying to get you to heaven because he hadn't got it ready for you. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go down that road any further. The opposite side of that is, well, it's not that he's getting heaven ready for me, but he's getting me ready for heaven. I'm not ready for heaven yet. I've got to get better. I've got to improve. I've got to change. I've got to grow. And when I get ready, then he'll take me to heaven. Well, if you were here last Sunday, you heard our pastor say, Jesus spoke not only from the cross, Father, forgive them, but he also spoke from the cross, it is finished. And when he said it is finished, he declared that the complete provision for our salvation was accomplished by him on the cross. And as an eight-year-old boy, when I trusted Jesus Christ, from that moment forward, I was ready to go to heaven. So why did he leave us here then? He's not getting heaven ready for us. He's not getting us ready for heaven. And you know the answer. There's just one reason. Jesus talked about it in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm leaving you here on the earth to be salt, to make an influence, to make an impression, to make a difference in the environment, in the culture, in the situation where you find yourself. I'm leaving here upon the earth, you here upon the earth, not only as salt, but as light. This world is covered with the darkness of sin and the darkness that the devil produces. But I'm leaving you here as a light to shine in the darkness that others may see and find their way to the Savior. Who are we? We're not waiting for heaven to get ready for us or us to get ready for heaven. We are here as God's servants, as salt and light. And I'll just quickly mention to you two or three other images that the New Testament gives us. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote into, to the Corinthians, we are ambassadors for Christ. We're strangers and aliens in the world and the culture in which we live. When we accepted Christ, we received a new nature, a new citizenship, a new destiny. 
But he left us here, and that makes us aliens and strangers. But we have an assignment to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ in this world. And then in another place, Paul wrote to Timothy. He said, Timothy, you need to know this, and you teach your people this. And he wants us to know it today as well. Not only are you an ambassador, but you also are a soldier. And you've been assigned to a battlefield. You've been assigned to a site of warfare. Fight the good fight. And Timothy, not only are you a soldier, but you're a farmer. You've been assigned to a crop. You've been assigned to a field. So uh, uh, plant, water, harvest, conduct the work of the farmer in the field where you've been placed. And then he said to Timothy, not only are you a soldier and a farmer, but you're also are an athlete. And you're participating in a contest. You're participating in a race. Now run the race with patience and with endurance. Who am I? I'm the salt of the earth. That's why Jesus left me here. To make this world taste better. And to be better by my presence and by my involvement. I'm the light of the world. I'm an ambassador of the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, on assignment in a strange and difficult situation and circumstance. I'm an athlete. I'm a farmer. I'm a soldier. None of those would allow us to sit down as our passage talked about. All of us, all of those call for us to stand and move and go and serve. Who's the real enemy? The devil. Why am I here? Because God has an assignment and an action for me. And what is my purpose? As an ambassador, as a soldier, as a farmer, as salt and life, what is my purpose? I may go to stepping on some toes here, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. My assignment is not to return to the past and the good old days. I think most all of us as Americans have lived long enough in this country to remember some days that were far better than now. And we just wish we could go back to those days of peace and prosperity and tranquility. But my assignment as a child of God has nothing to do with going back and recreating the past. My assignment is not just to build a better America as much as we love our nation. And I'm not unpatriotic. You see how I'm dressed. I'm not unpatriotic. But my assignment is not to build a better America. I'm a citizen of a kingdom. And my opportunity is to build that kingdom. And if along the way that makes America a better place, well and good. But if not, my assignment is eternal. My assignment is heavenly. And my responsibility is to fulfill that obligation, that duty, that uh, work. And not just to try to build something better for a short period of time. And if that hadn't meddled enough, let me go ahead and take it one more step. My assignment as a Christian in America today is not to make life more comfortable, more convenient, less painful, and less difficult. That's where we'd all like to be, isn't it? If we could just take some of the problems away and the pressure off, let everything smooth out, then we could just go right on enjoying life. Well, let me tell you who wants you to do that, and it ain't Jesus, okay? The enemy wants to deceive you into believing that that's the way you need to live your life. But Jesus has assigned us to impact and influence this world with the gospel that he made available. 
and just making life easier and convenient, it's not going to do that. In fact, the more we seek to fulfill that purpose, probably the less convenient, the less comfortable, the less ease we're going to find in our lives. So I close with these words to you today. The enemy is Satan. You're going to have to wrap your mind around that, but that's the truth. That's the truth of God's word. The enemy is not people. It's Satan. Fight the enemy. Hate the enemy. Seek to defeat and destroy the enemy. But the enemy is Satan. People are the object of God's love. You seek to love them and to win them in every way and at every opportunity. The enemy is Satan. The problem is sin. And the need to solve the sin problem is a Savior. And his name is Jesus Christ. When we understand those things, put them into place in our lives and begin to live not, we can't live all our lives at one time. We have to do it one decision at a time, one step at a time, one moment at a, one moment at a time, but begin to live our lives that way. And then individuals begin to do that and the Holy Spirit then begins to draw those individuals together. I believe we can make a difference in this world. But the bottom line is, the Bible teaches us the world's never going to be a panacea or utopia till Jesus comes back. It's not going to get better and better and better and remain that way. There may be some highs, but there are always going to be some lows. And as time comes to an end, the lows are going to be deeper and harsher and more difficult. So we're not living for that which is easy and convenient, but we're living for that which is eternal. And I invite you to follow that challenge and that uh, open door for you today. Just to, in a moment before our musicians come, and as I lead us in prayer in just a moment, I want to invite you to consider the need of a Savior. It may be your personal need of a Savior. You've never come to know Him and trust Him, meet Him and experience Him in your own life. If you need to do that, we invite you to do that today. Most of us here in person and by means of uh, video, live stream, we know the Savior. But we've let the devil deceive us into thinking who the potential enemy is and fail to realize who the real enemy is. We fail to remember our purpose and we fail to carry out our assignment. And so I want to call on us as believers today to renew our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as American citizens, if we'll do that, it will make a difference in the day and in the land in which we live. After I've prayed and the musicians begin to sing, I'll be here at the front. Others may join me here at the front. If you'd like to come making a public decision today, we invite you to do so. If you're in your home, make that decision at home and then let us know that you're uh, making that decision by phone or email. Some way, reach out to First Baptist Pelham and let us know that you're making that decision and that commitment today. If you're traveling, if you're far away from your personal home, but you're still viewing this broadcast either in person or maybe in a a recording of it later on today or later on this week or sometime in the future, I still call you to Christ if you do not know him. And if you do, to trust him for the situation, the circumstances we find ourselves in today. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we lift our voices once again. We thank you for your word. Your word is a sharp two-edged sword. And Lord, it brings hope and peace and comfort, but it also brings challenge and conviction. So, Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage today. Help us to learn from the weakness and the failure and the error of those found in Babylon. And help us ourselves 
to go in the right direction, to truly make a difference in the world in which we live, and to celebrate the gospel that is ours through Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.